Glad everyone's here this morning. Glad everybody found it okay. It can be tricky trying to find a new place to park and a new place to walk to and all that stuff. So I'm glad everybody was here. I was able to make it and make it on time. Um, if you want to open up to Genesis chapter 3, that's going to be the first verse we look at this morning. Genesis chapter 3. As uh, we kind of adjust to this new space, I thought it might be a good idea. Um, because of what we've been discussing in Hebrews already, it's on our minds and we have a lot of kind of, uh, I might say, the basics or the ins and outs of the concept of the tabernacle and the temple. We've kind of been dwelling on that. And so I wanted to take this time this morning uh, to talk about uh, where is it exactly that God is dwelling nowadays. Um, it's something we've kind of been talking about through Hebrews, like I mentioned, and it's something that I think is important to kind of reiterate um, as we're in a new space. I think sometimes the temptation is to feel like we've made it, you know, like when you, uh, I can think about times in my life when I've, the group that I've worshipped with has moved to a new building or a new place, and it's like we've arrived, you know, we've made it somewhere big, but really it's, nothing's really changed. Um, And I want to kind of look at that from a biblical perspective of, God's um, dwelling with his people being significant throughout the Bible and how that really has uh, shifted from location to location until its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Um, So anyway, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, if you want to turn there, if you haven't already, there's just one verse I want us to look at. As I asked this question, I titled this lesson, Where Does God Dwell? And I think most of us probably have a fair answer to that question, but I kind of want to walk from the beginning of the Bible to maybe the end of it and kind of ask this question. Where is it that God's dwelling? Well, at the beginning, uh, we know that God created everything that we know, right? We have the six days of creation rounded out by God resting on the seventh day. Well, in chapter 3, verse 8, let's read this together. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. See, in the beginning, it wasn't any one place that God was as much as it was all places, it seemed. Wherever man was, and that happened to be where God placed them in the garden, God was, right? We see God's presence being among them, and it says that they tried to hide from that, right? God's presence was moving and acting in the garden with them. They were able to discuss and converse with God in a way that maybe uh, is unfamiliar with us, right? But from the beginning, that's the way God set it up. Where man were, where he placed men and women, God's presence was. There was no middleman. There was no building. God was just there. And he was moving. Uh, And so we see God's intent from the beginning is that, right? We know ultimately the reason they're hiding is because they've gone against what God told them to do. And so from this moment on, things kind of shift, you know? God's pictured as being in this garden, moving around. His presence is there. And when they are uh, confronted with their wrongdoing, where does God send them? Away, right? Away from his presence, ultimately. But we've We'll say out of the garden, right? That's how we relate to it. We think of the place, but really it's out of the presence, right? God's still back in the garden as far as they're concerned, and they're sent out of the garden. And from there we see kind of this uh, saga of God trying to come back to where he can kind of be, as it were, in the garden, right? And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. 
God's always intended to dwell with his people like we saw in the garden. Um, so where has God dwelled? Historically, as we think about all of the times and all of the people that have come and gone, how is it that God has dwelled, if he has at all, with his people? I think the answer to that is uh, kind of a long one, um, but he has attempted to dwell with his people. He didn't just say, go out of the garden, I'm never going to talk to you again, right? That's what the rest of this book is about, God's attempt to dwell with his people again, right? To make his people who they once were in the garden before sin, so that he can be with them and have his presence with them again. The first iteration of this attempt, as we see it, um, on kind of a public level at least, is the tabernacle. Um, we see that, if you want to turn to Exodus 25, and this is kind of be the nature of this lesson, is we're going to hit some key points throughout the Bible showing this evolution, if you will, of God's dwelling with, with men. Exodus 25, we'll read verses 8 and 9. Exodus 25, verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Up to this point, after Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden, many generations had passed. A lot of events had passed. The world had been populated as far as uh, man could travel at this point. And God's uh, promises to Abraham had begun to kind of manifest themselves in this nation that was kind of living within a nation. right? The Israelites, as it were, were in Egypt. And God eventually says, I hear your prayers. I'm going to deliver you from Egypt. And as he does that, he takes them out of that place and he brings them to a mountain called Sinai. And this is where he says, all right, now that you are becoming a nation of my people, there needs to be a symbol of my dwelling with you, right? I need to be among these people if you're going to be mine. And so he says in this verse, let's make a sanctuary. And in verse nine, he says, I'm going to show you the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture. For the next 40 days, Moses is up on the mountain, and we assume it took that long for God to describe to him all of the ways in which this tabernacle was going to be built, the things it was going to be built with, the things that were going to be in it, how big they were, where they were going to be spaced. That's a lot of description. And you, when you read that part of Exodus, that's kind of the part when you, when you make your New Year's resolution to read through the Bible, that's kind of your first challenge, right? It's going well until you hit that part of Exodus, and then that's where maybe you fall a few days behind, right? Is reading all the details of the tabernacle. At least for me, that's how it is. But this is God's attempt to begin as we see, and we're going to carry this word kind of throughout the Bible. He tabernacles or he dwells among his people in this thing, in this structure that he specifies. And this is really God's uh, first attempt to kind of go back to the garden, if you will, to go back to his presence being among the people and them knowing it, right? Certainly God's never gone away, right? But the question with the people in Egypt, is God with us? Is God among us? Well, now this is something they could look to and know God was there, right? And so we have this. If you would turn to Exodus 40. So he gives all these instructions to build it. 
It would be a very sad story if God says, here's how you build it, and then he never actually comes into the place that he told them to build, right? But we know in Exodus 40, if you would look in verses 34 and 35, he does. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. All right, so God does actually, like, put his presence in this thing that he instructed them to build. Um, And when his presence fills it, an interesting thing occurs. It kind of repels people, right? I mean, Moses attempts to kind of go near it, right, to enter it. But just something about God's glory and his presence makes that, at least in that moment, something that's unable to be done, right? And this really begins, I think, a portrait and an understanding of just how holy God's presence is, just how great God's presence is. Uh, I think that's something that if I were Adam or you were Eve or whatever, and we were in the garden, we wouldn't quite understand because that's just how it's been, right? We don't know sin. We don't know what it's like for that not to be the case for me to be with God. But now we've had generations and thousands of years um, where people haven't had that experience. And so now for the first time they're seeing when God dwells somewhere, that's a really intense and awesome thing, right? When God's among his people. And so we move forward from this into what would later be called the temple, right? So the tabernacle is just that. It's, it's kind of this glorified tent that's able to be torn down and built back up rather quickly, as the people wandered and as they traveled to the place that God would give them rest, right? To the land of Canaan. But what happens when they get to the land of Canaan? Well, King David has this, this grand ambition. He says, you know what? We're all living in nice places now. Shouldn't God have somewhere nicer, somewhere more permanent? If I'm to paraphrase kind of how he feels about it. Um, and so let's turn to Second Samuel. In my daily reading, I've been trying to keep up with a, a daily reading this year, reading through the Bible chronologically. One thing stuck out to me when I read Daniel's, or Daniel, David's wish to build the temple was that God told him that was a good thing to wish for, but he wasn't allowed to do it. It's kind of a weird experience. Well, if it's, not, if it's a good thing, then why can't I do it? But God didn't allow him to do it. Um, but here in Exodus, or 2 Samuel 7... 2 Samuel 7, we have kind of the first glimpse of this. Verse 12, 2 Samuel 7 verse 12 reads, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. All right. This promise to David gives him kind of this first glimpse of this dream he kind of has of building God a temple, a place of worship, right, where he can dwell. And it's as glorious as the place uh, that they're in now in the land that he promised them. But God says, nope, he sends David, I mean, sends uh, Nathan to David, and he says, that's not going to be for you to do. And in this, he gives him some other promises. He says in verse 12, you're going to die, but I'm going to give you offspring. Who shall come from your body, and I'll establish his kingdom. So his lineage is going to continue. That's a huge blessing if you're a king. 
Verse 13, but, and the one that comes after you, he's going to build my house, a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David hears, finally, that the thing that he wants to do, he can't do, but his son is going to get to do it. Um, and so, ultimately, we see that Solomon does fulfill that. If you turn to 1 Kings 6, uh, 1 Kings 6. Uh, this is, you, you might even have a chapter heading that says something like Solomon builds the temple. Uh, in the first year of Solomon's reign, um, he begins to build the temple of God, which starts to fulfill this promise to David from Second Samuel. And if you flip over to chapter 8, verse 10, just like when we saw the tabernacle, it would be really sad if God said, yeah, you should build me a temple, but he never actually went into it, right? But in First uh, Kings 8 here, we see that God's glory does go in there. Look at verse 10. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Doesn't that sound awfully familiar to what happened to Moses? in the book of Exodus. Like they build this glorious thing exactly the way God specified it. And then God kind of settles in on it and it's described as a cloud being there. And then when the people you'd expect to be able to go in, like Moses, the priests, try to go in, they can't, right? It's just too, I don't know of another way to describe it. It's it's just too awesome. It's too intense, right? For them to be able to go in that place. And so... I just want to make a couple observations of the tabernacle and the temple up to this point. As God tries to bring us, bring his people back to a garden-like existence where they know the will of God and that God is dwelling with them. Obviously, there's some things that are not the same, right? But God is trying to come back into their presence and have a holy people around him. Do you notice kind of the limitations in this? Like, only the priests can go in there, and even in certain instances, they can't even handle going in there, right? Only Moses could go into the the tabernacle, and he even had to come out with a veil, right? We think about the stories involved, and even when God's presence is still among the people in those ways, it's never quite the garden, right? The garden, Adam and Eve spoke, and God spoke back. And he walked among them. And they were free to move and come and go and do. Um, But the tabernacle never really offered that. Um, The temple never really offers that. Um, It does offer some encouragement for the people that God is with us. And it is, as we might say, a step in the right direction. But it's never the same. Uh, Until, that is, uh, if you would turn to John. John chapter 1. I think this is an interesting connection here. And we'll begin to move into a little more of the application for us. John chapter 1, if you would look in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And of course this is speaking of Jesus, right? The word here, as I understand it, uh, dwelt among us is tabernacled. I don't know if any translation renders it that way, um, but that is the Greek word, to tabernacle among us. 
Isn't that interesting that God chose that word to describe this in this moment? The word became flesh, so God is coming near, and he tabernacles among men. Um, I think it's chosen that word very intentionally to show us that this is the next step. And of course, I use this word accommodatively, but this is the next step in the progression, right? We had God in the garden. Man kind of botched that one, right? And so the next step is kind of this tabernacle. And then the next step is this temple. It seems a little more glorious. It seems a little more permanent. But then we have this man that really is the, a tabernacle of God, right? But his tabernacle is not a building. It's a body. Isn't that interesting? It's getting a little nearer every time, a little more tangible every time, a little more familiar every time. And so here we have this portrait of Jesus being God tabernacled in the flesh, right? Being tabernacled among men. Um, I think this is where we begin to see the change, the shift. Obviously, Jesus brings all kind of change as far as nearness to God, right? We've been talking through Hebrews, um, and so I don't want to beat a dead horse with some of these points, but Jesus' uh, tabernacling among men marks the beginning of a shift. God is no longer distant. There's no longer a veil. There's no longer walls and a priesthood separating us from God. But rather, Jesus himself tabernacled among us, and he takes all that away, right? So even when we think about Jesus coming down in the flesh, when we think about the birth that he went through to become a man, really that should symbolize to us all of those things coming down. God came and tabernacled in the flesh. Um, as Hebrew help, Hebrews helps us understand that. So what does that mean for us? Um, we might be tempted to sometimes think about, all right, so God did that. So that means God's dwelling in our meeting place, right? Like he's in this, this hotel on Sundays with us. And in a sense, we could say that's true, right? As Christians, we say God's presence is with me. God's with me wherever I go. But it's not in the sense of the same as the tabernacle or the tent, right? Or the temple. Uh, look at Acts chapter 7. And I want us uh, to avoid feeling like, and I don't particularly think we are going to struggle with this. I hope not. But I don't want us to begin to think of any one location that we might meet as being significant beyond our utility of it. Um, look at Acts chapter 7, verse 44. Our fathers, this is Stephen speaking, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. That's what we read earlier. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, which is also what we read. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all of these things? And this is a psalm, a quotation of a psalm from Psalm 11. Um, 
Stephen tried to connect the dots for the people, right? I think even back when, it seems as if because of the quotation of the psalm, on some level David understood that the temple wasn't really containing God. God put his presence there, but it didn't like envelop and God's entirety was like contained within something that man created, right? But the point that Stephen's trying to make is to a, maybe a Jewish audience that's obviously hostile because we see where this gets him uh, killed, is that the tabernacle and the temple were never where God just was. They were never his home. It says that he's much bigger than that. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. What kind of house are you going to build for me? I think that understanding helps us and that if we can think about that, It'll help us, you know, in this new place, and maybe not make this something that it isn't, right? Um, in fact, if you would uh, turn to Acts 17, this will kind of elaborate on this point some more. Acts 17, verse 24 reads, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though as he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. Again, Paul is stating the same thing that Stephen stated, right? You know, this hotel room or our apartment or wherever we end up is not the thing that contains God. God is not hindered by where we meet or where we go or where we do not go, right? And again, I think all of us understand that. But this is encouragement for us because, as we're going to see here in a moment, God goes where we are. Um, if you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. So where is God? If he's not in the tabernacle, he's not in the temple anymore. We see that in some level with Jesus, he kind of tabernacled among men, but Jesus isn't here anymore, right? He's not still in the flesh. So something's changed. We've been talking about Hebrews, how uh, Jesus has changed, changed kind of the whole picture of everything we've known about God. Um, and in his temple and in his priesthood and in his sacrifices. Ephesians chapter 2 gives us an insight here into where it is exactly God is now. So then you are no longer, this is verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. When Paul's writing this, he's really talking about unity. Um, all of us are one in Jesus. But in doing that, he talks about how maybe spiritually we kind of fit into oneness. And that's because as Christians, you know, if I'm a male Christian and you're a female Christian, I'm not one house of the Lord and you're another house of the Lord. Or if I'm a, if I'm a, a young Christian and you're an older Christian, we're not two separate bodies of the Lord. We're formed and fitted by the Spirit into one house of God. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in this writing, Paul uses holy temple in the Lord. He wants us to think about how special and how set apart the temple that Solomon built was for God. Christians are made like that. 
Now, obviously, I don't turn into, like, a pile of gold when I become a Christian, right? And I'm inanimate now. But the idea is, if you're a Christian, you're a piece of God's house. God dwells within that house. He's of that house, and you're a member of that building. Just as Christ is the cornerstone of that building, and the apostles and the prophets maybe laid the foundation of that building that you're a part of, but you're still a piece of that, right? 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I think this iterates again the same thing here. 1 Peter 2 verse 4. As you come to him, as you and I come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Again, for us here, those who come to him, come to the one who is rejected, speaking of Jesus, and he ends up being the cornerstone of this building, just like Ephesians 2 said. We're being shaped and we're being molded into the household of God. So in a sense, we can say the house of God is wherever we are, right? Wherever we may be, um, if I move off to some faraway place and you move off somewhere else, the house will be wherever you are and the house will be wherever I am, right? Because the house is no longer a physical house. It's not a, in Jerusalem. This, this verse even alludes to that. Uh, if you would look again in verse 6, I am laying in Zion a stone. A Jew might read that in Jerusalem. God's laid down some stones. God's dwelling in Jerusalem. But here we're informed that the Zion is not the Jerusalem of old that maybe we think of. The Zion here is uh, the people, right? The place where God's people are is Zion. And that's where God's building this house of his people. All right, and then there's even... A more individualistic sense. That's kind of the group sense, right? We together, as God's people, are shaping and forming this house that's built on Christ as the cornerstone and the prophets and the apostles as the foundation. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. In the discussion of immorality and sins going on in the Corinthian church, Paul tries to make the point of like, hey, you need to take your body and your life seriously because God's dwelling within you. It's not something just to kind of do whatever with, right? There may have been some thought of, well, my body's my body, my spirit's my spirit, and maybe I can do whatever in the body and my spirit's okay. Well, Paul makes the connection of like you are where God is. If you are holy and you are set apart for God, then don't be taking part in all this other stuff, right? And so as we functionally as a group maybe form this house of God, also individually we need to kind of think God is with me. I am of God. God is of me, right? 
as this verse says. Again, the same idea conveyed in chapter 6, um, verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not of your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Right? Obviously, there's lessons here about sexual sins and temptations. But the point that I'm trying to make here is, we can say that God has some dwelling within me. I may not understand how that works or what that means entirely, but just as we are, as a group, shaped into God's house, I can also say that God is within me as a person because I've been set apart for Him. Right? God has bought me back, and He intends to dwell in me. Um, and so as, as we consider you know, this, this new meeting place that we have, as a blessing, it's nice to have a place to meet and for people to find us and come be a part of what we're trying to do here and teach people the Lord. I personally can get caught up in the place. And I just need to remind myself that, you know, there was a time where God had a place. But now the place is you and the place is me and the place is us. So wherever we find ourselves moving to or from, don't be too discouraged or whatever by that because God isn't being left behind. You know, God isn't going to leave us behind because we're in a new place or we're moving somewhere else. God is with us and because we are his people. I appreciate James reading the, the verses that he read earlier because it's a longer section and we won't read it again. Um, but Paul talks about kind of a tent in two different ways. He talks about your body kind of being this earthly tent you dwell in, but also just kind of in a general sense, like life is kind of this earthly tent and we're groaning for something beyond this fleshly world, right? Well, I think Paul's vantage point that he's talking about is an earthly one, obviously. He's a man. And as great as Paul was, he hadn't experienced what was beyond the flesh yet, right? And so as he writes... Verse 2, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. God's dwelling with us shows us or proves to us that there's a dwelling beyond now. There's something better and greater coming down the line. And so I I like to look at these verses and kind of think of them as a human or a mortal's perspective on what it is for God to dwell with us. Because we kind of feel it now, but we're, we're looking for something better, right? If you would turn to Revelation 21, we'll read a couple verses here and in 22. I think this is kind of God's perspective on what it looks like when God dwells with us. Um, And you say what you will for if this is now or in the future. Minimally, this is God's perspective of what it's like when he really, truly dwells with us. Paul says, I long for that. I experience it now a little bit because I see the Spirit. It's the guarantee of something better, but all I know is I want what's ahead. Well, this is kind of God describing what it's like when he really dwells with us. 
chapter 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Skip to chapter 22, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. This, I believe, is speaking of this new Jerusalem. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we kind of get Paul's end, right? We groan for what's ahead. God has tabernacled with us. He has changed, (laughs) I say it this way, he's kind of changed the game, right? Jesus tabernacled and changed everything, and God is much nearer. But Paul, even still in that, groans for the fullness of what it is to dwell with God. And I think this portrait here is God saying, this is what it looks like when I dwell with you. So we kind of have both pictures, the man's view, Paul's view, and we have God's view. And so I I hope that's encouraging for us as we've been studying through Hebrews and we're thinking about the temple and how Jesus has become the sacrifice and become the high priest, but also how that gives us a sense of redemption, how as close as we are we are to God and what a blessing it is to be able to be as close as we are now, we need to be like Paul and longing for even more. We need to be longing for something beyond this room, right? Sometimes the room or the church building or whatever makes us feel close to God. We need to be like Paul and say, you know what? I'm longing for something beyond the flesh. I'm longing for what God describes in the book of Revelation. When the glory of God illuminates the place, there is no sun and there is no moon. There is no detestable thing, but God is there. So hopefully this lesson was encouraging for you. Um, Again, I don't think this is something I anticipate us particularly struggling with, putting too much stock in our location. But I wanted to kind of use that to spin an encouraging lesson on what it is really when God dwells with us and how much effort God has put in trying to help us see that it's important that he be with us, but how much greater the things are that are still going to come. So thank you guys. If there's anyone here that needs to straighten something out in your life, um, you need the prayers of the group to dwell with God again in a sense, to be in a relationship with him. Let us know. We can help you with that. We can pray for you for sure. Or if that's a relationship you've never really started, um, it's a good time to do that. So come while we sing this song.